0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the rich, complex world of Middle Earth, J.R.R. Tolkien introduced us, introduced the world to Smeagol. Now, we meet him towards the end of his life He is this wrecked, wretched creature, gurgling sounds in his throat that sounds something like Gollum. Maybe you've seen a poster or a picture of the creature, Gollum. He is obsessed with a ring, uh, the ring, this ring of immeasurable worth and power. You see, at one point, we learn some of his backstory. Before his precious uh, takes control of Smeagol, he was this young man, of ease and wealth and means and leisure. He had been out fishing with his cousin on his birthday, and they came across this ring. They discovered it, and Smeagol wanted it so much, he claimed it as his birthday present, that he killed his cousin, and he took possession of the ring. When in fact, what we learn through the stories is that the ring took possession of him, and it twisted him. And it changed him from this young man, Smeagol, to this creature, Gollum. Dehumanized him by the grip it had on his life and his affections. Now, the story of Gollum is is well known from The Lord of the Rings and from The Hobbit. It, It advances the narrative of those stories. It serves as a foil to Frodo, the good hobbit who resists the pull of that same ring. But it serves like so many stories, whether it's in film or literature, folklore, It warns us of a danger, and it warns us. It sits as a parable against the danger that wealth and material goods and possessions can have in our lives, how they can grip us and grab us and change us and twist us. This morning, our lectionary reading is from the Gospel of Mark, and we meet another young man of means and leisure, not that different from Smeagol, the rich young ruler he's often called. Um, he's anonymous in the Gospels, but he, he serves here as a clear warning against those same things, the hold that wealth, the material goods, the pursuit of riches can have on our lives, the harmful hold and grip that we can find ourselves in. So this morning, I'm going to walk through this extraordinary encounter where this man encounters Jesus. And then as happens so often after the encounter, there's a bit of kind of post-game commentary. That Jesus has with his disciples. So we'll look at that just a little bit. But we'll focus on this encounter between Jesus and this young man. So the encounter, we're in Mark chapter 10. And what we see from the text is as he was setting out on his journey, um, that's always a clue for us in the gospel of Mark. Uh, because in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke, whenever Jesus is on a journey, um, it's not pointless. It's always a journey to the cross. And every journey we see in the Gospels takes place in the shadow of the cross that is to come. And so Jesus approaching that moment, he's walking out the door, he's on his journey, and this man comes up to him. This isn't a parable, by the way. Oftentimes in the Gospels, Jesus will tell these parables. Um, and those stories are, are, I hesitate to say, they're not factual, they're true, They communicate truth, but they're not events that happen in the life of Jesus. They're illustrations. Uh, They're stories that Jesus is telling. This is a person. It's a person who meets with Jesus. He's anonymous. We get this title, the rich young ruler, as kind of a composite from the Gospels. Likely he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Um, When we see this young man, we should think, here's a young man uh, with potential. He's good. He's successful in the things and ways of the world. Um, Many of us can actually take the opportunity that he doesn't have a name to maybe put our names in here. Because a lot of us have a lot in common with this young man. Um, He's wealthy. He's successful. He's he's trying to do things right. And he's coming up to meet Jesus. By the way, I should probably mention, uh, last week, Father Bill gave a great sermon Uh, Looking at a really tricky, thorny passage, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Um, Our lectionary hops right to this text, but let me just remind you what comes in between. It's important, I think, for understanding the context here. Between that teaching on marriage and divorce, and before we get this rich young ruler, says they were bringing children to him, and the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Up comes the rich young ruler. Up comes this question. What does it mean for us to receive the kingdom of God like a child? I think that's the backdrop between this conversation that he has with Jesus. I think Mark's gospel is brilliant. And setting that in, in contrast with one another. The children who come, delighting to be in Jesus' presence. And this rich young ruler who comes with his questions, with what he's seeking. He wants to come to God on his own terms. Good, respectable adult terms. Um, and I don't mean to, to put him down. He's got a lot going for him. A lot to right. He's asking the right question even but he comes in many ways with his resume. We'll see that in the conversation. He wants to let God know what he's done, what he hasn't done differently than these children who just come to receive, just to be in the power and presence of Jesus. He's coming. Hey, how do I inherit? How do I get? Am I doing it right? He's seeking in some ways the benefits of following God. And again, this isn't just about those children and that young man, it's about us. And we can put ourselves in this passage. We can let Jesus ask these questions of us and see how we may answer them because many of us are also rich. Especially if you look around the world, we, we are rich. We are wealthy. We, are, we have material goods. Um, here we're in Athens. Folks are smart and accomplished and they, they get into school and they do things. And again, those things aren't bad, but Jesus wants to ask what's ultimate. What's the most important? What is our life tethered to? Are we willing to come like a child or do we come with our resumes? Do we come seeking? Do we come trying to get? It's interesting. The man's question, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Way to go. Rich young ruler, you have asked the right question. And then Jesus' answer is a little bit of a curveball. Why do you call me good? Good can you imagine the poor guy being like, because you're Jesus. (laughs) That's why I call you good. Who else do you call good? And he deflects, says, no, no, no one is good but God. Um, As I was digging into some of the the background of this text, it was interesting. Um, I I read that this this address, this man has good teacher, actually wasn't very common in the first century. Because again, you would only call God good. That was the teaching of the leaders. That's what Jesus reminds him. And it's actually likely that when he says good teacher, it's a term, it's, it's formal, it's flattery. It's actually in some ways expecting maybe a return. Good teacher, yes, noble friend. That's the kind of adult conversation that's happening here. It's a calculated conversation with pleasantries, with protocols. He's trying too hard. In many ways. And I don't think Jesus is harsh with him. He's gentle when he just deflects. Hey, well, why do you call me good? We don't need to butter one another up. Let's talk. Let's have a real conversation. Like he had been having with those children. <laughs> Not with some of the games that adults play. In conversation. That's what's happening. He's gently refusing to play this man's game. And he's shifting the attention. He's saying let's, let's look at the goodness of God. Do we measure up to that? How do we measure up to that? That's an important question for his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so verses 19 through 20 are interesting. He says, Jesus says to this man, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man says to Jesus, teacher, he got the point. No longer good teacher, teacher, see that? Teacher. All these I have kept from my youth. And there's no reason to doubt him. He's sincere. He's earnest. He's devout. Likely, he has been obedient. And he has done the things he's supposed to do, and he's not done the things he's not supposed to do. We're not supposed to doubt him in this, but it's interesting. These are definitely relational commandments, how we love our neighbor. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright points out that Jesus doesn't ask him about the first few commandments, but he probably would have followed those as well. Or at least say, I've I've done my best to do what I'm supposed to do and to not do what I'm not supposed to do. He's kept his commandments. He's devout. Jesus knows him. He sees what's in this man's heart. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, he sees him. He knows his internal motivations. He he knows his history. He knows his desires, his affections, his attentions. And I think Jesus knows, okay, he's right. He's not done anything overt. He's not chased idols, um, at least overtly. He's not going after false gods or, or bowed down to Zeus, but there's something with these material goods some hold these possessions have on this man's life. Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods. I don't know if you've read it. If you haven't, it's it's a great read. And he basically writes about how in the ancient world, they had more or less, you know, these pagan deities, Zeus, Aphrodite, whatever it might be. Um, Ours are just more respectable. (laughs) But we chase the same stuff. Wealth and success, pleasure, leisure, these kinds of things. And the same question comes, are we going to treat those things as ultimate? Are we going to hold on to them? Do we realize the hold they have on us? Or will we bring those to the Lord? Like children. Look what's happened. Look what's been done. Here's this hold. Would you free me? Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. I think knowing what has a hold on this man, he he puts his finger on it like Gollum's ring with Gollum. But again, verse 21, I think is one of the most uh, beautiful, heartbreaking sentences in in all the Gospels. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He saw him fully. He knew all of the ways this man was malformed and the, the things that had a hold on his life. And Jesus knows it and sees it and sees it fully and loves him. He wants to free him from those things. He wants to call him to himself. He says, okay, out of that awareness, Jesus says, you lack one thing. That's pretty good. Like if you're graded on a religious curve and you lack one thing, that's not bad. So you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now this isn't Jesus trying to take anything from this guy. He's not trying to rob him. He's not trying to leave him alone and destitute. He wants to free him from the hold that his idols have on his life. It'd be like taking Gollum's ring. It'd be painful, it'd be hard, but ultimately, it would be what is best for him. And again, our task is not to look at this guy and go, man, I can't believe you were wrapped up in wealth and possessions. The challenge for us is to go, hey, what, what has a hold on our lives in a similar way? Um, If you'll permit me a moment, I do say this is the point, by the way, in the college football season. I'm going to say, if you are a University of Georgia fan, um, please do everything in your power not to make that an idol. Because if you make that an idol like they did in Alabama, then the Lord will be forced (laughs) out of his goodness and love for you to take it away. And we don't want that. We want things in their proper place. Seriously, though. We're asked, what, what has a hold on our lives? What has a hold on our affections? What does it mean to, to follow Jesus? That's the invitation. Come, follow me like a child. James Edwards, he, he's a New Testament scholar. He writes on this passage that the call to discipleship always involves the cost of discipleship. Jesus told this man what his, what his cost would be. But in the Gospels, fishermen, they, they leave boats and nets, right? They have to leave that aside. Tax collector, he leaves his tax table, his ledgers. Peter has to get rid of his false ideas about the Messiah and force and power. He's ready to go to war, take the country back. He has to lay that down. Another disciple will have to leave a a bystander security. Simon of Cyrene, he's just standing trying to mind his own business. They're like, hey, you're going to carry his cross. I'd rather not. Doing quite well on the sidelines, not in anyone's Spotlight on no one's radar. No, you come carry his cross. The call to follow Jesus always comes and challenges the things that have primary influence in our lives. And it comes and it challenges those, it subverts them, it replaces them. It says, No, place your allegiance and love fully on the Lord Jesus. Um, and as hard as that might seem, like selling all your possessions. It's for our good. It's not to take something from us. It's realize that these things are, are, are making us less than human. Again, the creature Gollum has been dehumanized. And that's what sin does. That's what idols do. They make us less human. Less than what God would want us to be. Less than we've been created to be. Well, verse 22, it's again a heartbreaking verse disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions it's kind of the end of the story on this guy we don't hear a lot about him i would always hoped maybe you would read like early church history and be like and then after the resurrection he figured no last we hear of him we don't even get his name and again i think that's partly so that we would say all right, we can put our names here. We can face this challenge. We can look at this like a mirror. What is God calling us to give up? What is God calling us to? What are the things that we know aren't good for us and exert these bad influences on our lives that we give ourselves to? Do we believe that Jesus can actually free us from those things and replace it with something better? Because that's what Christ wants. He wants our, what's best for us. He wants us to flourish And he knows that these idols will divert our devotion and demand more of us than we're willing to give up. They'll cost us in the end. The creature Gollum, he's this icon of idolatry. And this man, his idol was material. Ours certainly could be that. Um, But there are other idols, power, success, pleasure, all these things. And Jesus wants to set us free from sin, free from death, free from the evil one, to find true, abundant, eternal life in him. Let's look at this post-game commentary just a little bit. This explanation. Because after this happens, the man walks away, and Jesus is left with his disciples. They're trying to process this. And we get to briefly eavesdrop, and Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, this would have been counterintuitive. If you're a good first-century Jew, (laughs) you certainly... Do not see wealth as an impediment for spiritual life. You actually see wealth as confirmation that you've been doing it right. That God has blessed you because you've been obedient, because you've been doing things well. And so this has to throw them a little bit. What do you mean wealth is a challenge? That's a blessing. That's a way to go. That's an attaboy from the Lord. And Jesus says, no, no, because it can get its grips in us. We can depend on it, be overly self-reliant. He says, no, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He reminds them with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, a camel through the eye of a needle, that's a miracle. Any of us coming to the Lord, that's a miracle. As he works and renews and redeems, and restores. It's always worth, just maybe as a caveat, just to point out, Jesus has nothing against rich people or nothing against material wealth or possessions. In fact, Jesus has a lot to say about how we properly steward the good things God gives us. We're to be generous. We're to give thanks for how He provides. but we're not to rely on our goods. We're not to rely on the work of our own hands. Tim Keller writing about this says, Jesus has no ideological problem with wealth per se. Having money is not wrong or unjust in and of itself. Nonetheless, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying there's something radically wrong with all of us. And that money has just this particular power to blind us to what's wrong. We can rely on it in unhelpful ways. It can feed habits that dehumanize us. We can find our security in our stuff rather than in the Savior. No, it has power to deceive us of our true spiritual state. Jesus says, you need to go sell that and come to me. But we need this gracious, miraculous intervention from God to act in our lives. One man who saw this clearly was Jim Elliott. You might know Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in the last century, uh, martyred for his faith when he went to, to spread the gospel. And they found a journal entry he had written, said a person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Say that again, a person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's the that's the crux of this. That's where Jesus is driving. What's eternal? What's ultimate? And by the way, I will just, we don't have much time, but I'll just say this. Um, Jesus isn't asking this man, he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done first. This is the encounter of the rich young ruler with Jesus, right? Do you know you could also, count, you could call this the Rich young ruler's encounter with the rich young ruler. You could actually apply that to Jesus because Jesus was rich beyond measure. It's in the presence of God. He had glory unimaginable. And the scriptures tell us that that one who was rich, this ruler, actually was willing to lay that aside, come and to be born. In abject poverty, to come and be dependent, to come and be fragile, to come and be harmable and even killable for us, for our salvation, for you and me, out of his great love for us. Paul summed it up this way in 2 Corinthians 8. It says, Jesus was rich, rich young ruler, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus isn't trying to take something from us. He's not trying to take something from this man. He wants to give us what is ultimate and eternal. He wants to give us himself. He wants to invite us into the kingdom. He wants us to have a place in the life of the world to come. He talks about that with his followers, his disciples. Even at the end of this, I love it. Peter's kind of saying, oh, that's good because look what I've given up. Come on, Peter, (laughs) dude. (laughs) Jesus said, hey, anything you give up, um, it's going to be repaid and restored and redeemed beyond what you can hope or even imagine. Not in health and wealth here, but in abundant life. In the age to come, when we come face to face with the Lord Jesus and all of his goodness, just like this man did. He's trying to give us everything. But he's trying to do it in his own way, through His timing, and in ways that are good for us. Ways that will make us fully human rather than allow us to cling to things that dehumanize us. Hollow things that will never give us satisfaction in the end and that will always ask of us more than we're willing to give. May we have the courage, the grace to take up our cross and follow Him, the courage and grace and the innocence to come like children, humbly, eagerly to receive Jesus, his person, his ministry for us, for our salvation. May we trust in him alone. May we be freed from other things that we're tempted to trust in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.